The rest of us, take your Bibles and find your way to Psalm chapter 50. If a Bible is uh, um, new to you or unfamiliar and you're not quite sure how to find Psalms, the advantage of Psalms, it's kind of right in the middle of the Bible. So if you just crack the Bible open kind of in the middle, you'll probably find yourself in the Psalms, and then you're just going to find chapter 50. Uh, the big numbers in the Bible are the chapter numbers and the little numbers are the verse numbers. We're going to be in Psalm chapter 50 this morning. I hope you've been encouraged already. There's lots of distractions that we bring in with us. We live busy lives. We live in a world where lots of things aren't the way they are supposed to be. Uh, but friends, Sunday is a reminder uh, that the time is ticking down on that. Jesus is coming again. He will make all things right. I hope your heart found encouragement and hope in the truths you sang today. Even the last song we just sang, that we have a God who is holy. There's none like that. He's one of a kind. And this is the God whom we look forward to uh, seeing one day face to face in Jesus Christ. So I hope your hearts have been encouraged this morning already in the service together. Psalm chapter 50. So far in our series this summer in the Psalms, we've had the wonderful reminders of and snapshots of God's character, of his attributes, of his actions, the majesty, the trustworthiness, the holiness of God. We've been reminded of these truths over and over again from each chapter as we've looked in Psalms. Last week in Psalm chapter 49, we were reminded of God's majesty. He's timeless and eternal, and that's in contrast with how temporal we are. I mean, Psalm 49 kind of has, in our, in our worldview, a bleak message, right? We're all going to die. But what's encouraging is that we're reminded in Psalm 49 that God alone is the one who can ransom a soul from death. Psalm chapter 50 gives us another snapshot of God's grandeur, of his majesty, but with a twist. This time, the grandeur and might are, of God are celebrated in this psalm by focusing on the reality that God will judge. God is a judge. You think, oh, here we are in a church. This is so, you know, so typical you got a pastor standing up there saying, God's going to judge you. Well, Psalm chapter 50, that really is the main idea of this psalm. I think you caught that as it was read for us aloud, where God says, gather, here, come, my people, I have words to speak to you. I'm going to break my silence, and here is my words of judgment against you. Now, that might seem like a heavy and unenjoyable topic, right? Maybe you're thinking, hey, I came here for an encouragement, kind of a pick-me-up, kind of give me some three steps on how to live life this next week, and now you're going to talk about God's judgment, well, friends, here's what's the blessing of God's word. God knows what we need better than we do. And so as a church family, as we, stay, as we submit to the authority of God's word and open up God's word, we don't have, pastors aren't giving to you a new message. We are simply reporting to you the message of God's word. I hope you're encouraged to know that God has blessing for us in this psalm. Uh, in, a, in a psalm that you might read and the world might look at it and go, well, that seems kind of bleak and boring. Move on. Friends, I hope your hearts are going to be encouraged this morning as we look into this psalm about God's judgment. Uh, how do we organize this psalm? Think of it like a short um, pamphlet, like a short booklet. Uh, you open it up and there's an introduction. That's verses 1 through 6. And then you're supposed to stop and think about that introduction. That's what the word Selah is there for. And then you're going to read chapter 1. Chapter 1 is verses 7 through 15. And in that chapter, God condemns heartless worship. You finish that chapter and there's chapter 2. This is a short book, right? Chapter 2 is found in verses 16 through 21 where we learn that God condemns wicked living. And then you finish chapter 2 and you turn the page and you have the conclusion. And that's the last two verses of this psalm. That's how this psalm is organized. An introduction, a chapter 1, a chapter 2, and then a conclusion. 
That's how we're going to work through the psalm together this morning. So in this introduction, we are, in, we are introduced to the main character, and the main character is God himself as judge. So if you're a note taker, maybe this will help you. Number one, God is the righteous judge. That's what the first few verses are establishing for us as readers. God is the righteous judge. Look at the description that God has in the first verse of this psalm. The mighty one, God the Lord. There are three terms there given to describe God. The mighty one establishes God as the supreme power over all things and everything. By the way, in the pagan nations would claim that their God was the mighty one. God here is establishing that he is the true mighty one. Then you have the word God, which is a title, a title that he is God, El, okay? And lots of the, na- the pagan nations had God or gods that they would worship. So here you have someone who is establishing himself as the mighty one, the supreme one over all things. He is God, but now we get into the specific identity of who this mighty God is. And you see it there? He is the Lord. And that's capitalized. And again, I, I keep drawing attention to this in the psalm, but it's important because God is identifying himself with his personal name here of Jehovah, of Yahweh. And, and we, we looked about at this in weeks before, so I won't rehash it for us again this morning. But this is the name that God revealed himself when he met Moses, right, with the burning bush, and he called Moses to call Israel out of Egyptian slavery, out of Egyptian bondage, so that they could be worshipers of Jehovah. Moses says, who am I going to say sent me to do this work? And God identifies himself as the I am, the the pre-existent, eternally existent one. And he names himself then as Jehovah. This is the one who is coming forward in Psalm 50 as a righteous judge. He's speaking, he's summoning the earth together from the rising of the sun to its setting. What God is doing here is he is calling, right? He's calling together witnesses for this courtroom scene that's being gathered together. Which, by the way, God identifying himself as Jehovah, as God, the Mighty One, sets us up with an understanding that in Psalm 50, God is getting at the core of true worship. There's lots of things that are done in the world that are worship. People are worshiping all the time. We have to worship because we're, we're made in God's image. We're made to worship someone, something. The problem is, is we often worship the wrong thing, the wrong one. God establishes himself as the one to be worshipped and then he's calling us back to, the, back to this because he is coming forward then to usher into this courtroom scene witnesses for what's going to proceed. The witnesses are called. He's calling really the entire earth, right? From the rising of the sun to the setting from east to west. This is a judge like no other, right? He's not going through just picking just kind of some jurors, a few jurors. Since he is the mighty one, he can call all of creation to stand as witness for the courtroom proceeding that's going to follow. So once the witnesses have been called, God himself enters. I don't know if you've ever, uh, maybe this is cliche, maybe you've watched, you know, from Perry Mason, you know, shows or whatever, but, you know, everybody's in the courtroom, and then you've got a guy that stands there and says, oye, oye, and then the, the judge, I'm not exactly sure what oye, oye means, but the judge then walks in. There's kind of this announcement of the judge coming into the courtroom. Everybody stands, right? Uh, there's, a, there's a different style going on here for God. All of the earth is summoned, Right? And then as he comes in, nobody announces God's presence. God announces his own presence. You see how he announces it? Verse 2, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. No one can really announce this judge entering the courtroom. His arrival announces himself. It kind of takes the breath away from everyone else. 
Verse 3, our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him a mighty tempest. These words that describe God really are breathtaking. A devouring fire reminds us of God's holiness. We sang about that this morning. How you have snapshots given to us in in the Scriptures, like in Isaiah 6, snapshots of the throne room of God, and you have these angelic creatures which who alone would take our breath away, right? Let alone, we haven't even gotten to God yet. These angelic creatures would take our breath away, and what they are proclaiming over and over again is holy, holy, holy. This devouring fire of God is being announced. Remember Moses at the burning bush? He comes to explore what this bush is that's not consumed with fire. And God tells him to take off his sandals. Why? Because he's standing on holy ground. Why? Because the presence of God was there. Or a mighty tempest. What comes to my mind is a hurricane. I've only been through one hurricane. It was, supposed to, it was a big one, but then it hit land south of us. Thankful for us. Sad for the people south of us. And it came through as just like a category one. I, folks, hurricanes are things that kind of make you, make you shiver this wind, this roar of this tempest outside, that is the pictures that are describing God entering this courtroom as the judge. These images of fire and storm would have reminded ancient Israel of the time when God appeared to them on the Mount of Sinai. He's there to give them the law. He tells them to put fences around the mountain so they don't get too close and if they were to touch the mountain, they they would be killed instantly. Why? Because of God's presence. And it's described this way in Exodus chapter 19. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. And then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. What's happening on Sinai? Well, now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because of the Lord, because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. That's the images that I think Psalm 50 is evoking. The memories that have been recorded for Israel when this, when this occasion happened. The might, the power, the holiness, the presence of God Almighty, El Elohim Jehovah, who has come to make his case. You say, well, this sounds a little bit melodramatic. I mean, does God have to, like, you know, show off? Friends, this isn't dra- drama. This is reality. That's God. This is the one whom we just praised this morning in united worship and song and in prayer and in reading of the scriptures. This is the God. So, whatever notion of God we might have, if it doesn't include these, ship, these earthquake, tempest, devouring fire, awe-inspiring, soul-shivering kind of experiences, then we don't truly have grasped who God is. You say, well, hang on now. God is also gentle and lowly and meek and kind and merciful and compassionate. Yes, but not to the exclusion of the might and the tempest and the power represented here in Psalm 50. And I think it's important for us to remember both of these realities about God. He is not our boyfriend. He is God Almighty. And he has something to say to his people to rebuke them in judgment. 
So then, before we go any further, we come to verse 6, right? The heavens declare His righteousness for God Himself is judged. No one can accuse God of being false in His judgment, being misaligned in His judgment, being misinformed. Every judgment He makes, every decision He makes is righteous. So then, verse 6 ends with the word Selah. And we think this means stop and consider. Give this thought. And I think we probably need to do this. We need to consider that we have a God who is judge. He is a judge. Now, I don't know how your heart responds to that. If you're a Christian, maybe I should back up. Do you believe that God is judge over all? Not everyone else, but over you. You will one day stand accountable to this mighty tempest, this devouring fire of God who is righteous judge. If you're a Christian, you should say yes to that. And your heart should be assured, not fearful. Your heart should be assured. Your heart should be full of thanksgiving to know that God is your judge, but Jesus took your judgment. So your relationship with God is not in this fear of the mighty tempest consuming you, but in knowing that the mighty tempest is working good for you because of Jesus. But if you're not a Christian, the reality that God is your judge should fill you with great fear, great concern. And maybe you're thinking, well, I don't even believe in God at all. You just, I don't know how you ended up in here. Thanks for coming. If you're not a Christian and you think, I'm not even, I don't even believe in God, well, then I'd like for you to consider then on what do you base every moral action you do? On what then do you base every, and what do you base and justify your anger over the wrongs and injustices you've experienced and, the, and, and your loved ones have experienced? Your sense of justice has to come from somewhere. It has to come to some benchmark of ultimate judgment when the scriptures, the Christian scriptures teach that is God himself. You see, there's an instinct in all of us, right? We feel this sense of justice. We want the wrongs that have been done to us righted. Well, that points us to the ultimate judge who will right every wrong. So you might say, oh, this is heavy, right? It reminded me that I'm going to be judged by this mighty judge, this righteous, holy judge. Maybe you feel a burden of guilt. Maybe your conscience is condemning you. Well, hang in there. There is some great news coming. But we need to let Psalm 50 show it to us in its own time. So now that we've established God as judge, what is the case that he's bringing? That's chapters 1 and chapter 2 of this. Beginning in verse 7, he is going to speak now to the people he's going to judge. And interestingly enough, he says, Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. This is not a judgment about pagan nations, about Assyria, the Ammonites, the Babylonians. It's not a, not a judgment against the pagan nations of the day. This is a judgment from God against his own people. What God is teaching us in verses 7 down to 15 is that God condemns heartless worship. Now, let me, let me show it to you. Beginning in verse 7, God calls this court proceeding to order. In the opening lines, there's a stern call to give careful attention. When he says, Hear, O Israel, um, uh, hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, I will testify against you, that kind of reminds us in Deuteronomy 6, with the Shema of, of the law of God, when God calls Israel to hear what, what he's called them to be as his people, when he gives them his law. So what's happening here, you say, well, how is then he, is God accusing, is God displeased with their worship when it says in verse 8, not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you, your burnt offerings are continually before me. 
Well, why is God upset with them about worshiping Him? It's not like I could understand maybe if they had forgotten to worship Him, they'd become lax in their worship of Him, they weren't going to the temple, the sacrificial system was, was being forgotten. That happened, by the way, in Israel's time, uh, through the times of the kings and the exiles. You say, well, that's not happening because God says here that they are bringing sacrifices. They're continually before Him in verse 8. God continues by telling them that it's not the actions that he's upset with. Verse 9, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. That's, but that's what he's commanded them to do. So why is he upset with them for doing what he's asked them to do? Bring your goats, bring your bulls, offer these sacrifices. This is the way that you have a relationship with God. This is how you're going to relate to God. There's these things that are required and it requires sacrifice. And of course, we understand that that pointed ahead to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus. But why is God upset with them here? The issue is the motive in the ones doing the acts of worship. The motive. In verse 9, when he says, I will not accept a bull, I will not accept goats from your folds, verse 10 then gives the reason why. Verse 10, 11, and 12. Here's the reasons. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills. All that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world in its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Here the main issue of why is why God will not accept their sacrifices is that they were giving sacrifices to God as if they were giving some, God something he needed, that he lacked. They had this wrong idea of what was happening in these sacrifices. God set this up because I guess he needs this and so we're going to give him something he needs. Aren't you pleased with us, God? Look at what we're doing for you, God. And so they're bringing these sacrifices to God, thinking that they're giving to God something that he needs, doing him a favor, and that is wrong. God scoffs at that notion and he sets the record straight. Everything they give him already belongs to him. He's not a local shepherd with local flocks. He needs more. And he needs to ask them, can you please bring them to me out of your flocks, out of your, shep- out of your, um, out of your herds? No. God brings this word of judgment against Israel in Psalm 50 because it seems they had drifted into a sort of pagan version of worship of Jehovah. Jehovah is not like a false god of the pagan nations. The pagan nations had sacrifices too. And those sacrifices were given because those pagan nations believed those gods needed that food. They needed these offerings in order for them to, to, to carry on in their role as these pagan deities. But God is, Jehovah is not like those pagan gods. He's different. That whole arrangement with pagan worship is a scam. There's only one true God, and that is the mighty one, God Jehovah, and you cannot ever bribe him or control him. That's what the pagan nations would try to do. They would give these offerings trying to bribe their false deities to giving them rain or giving them sun or giving them what they need, fertility, so they can flourish in society. That's not Jehovah. In fact, as soon as you try to bribe God or give him something you think that he's give him a favor, he will not accept that so-called worship. This idea of transactional worship, I'm going to give God something so that then he is going to be obligated to give me blessings. Right? That whole idea of transactional worship was explored deeply in the book of Job. And we can't get into all of that, but Job definitively proves that God is worthy to be worshipped not because of what he gives a person, but because of who he is. And so this is what God is calling 
in judgment against His people. They've drifted into this false, into this phony worship. Their hearts aren't in it at all. Not correctly, not at all. And God responds to the utter absurdity of this kind of so-called worship. There's a sharp contrast between verse 9 and verses 10 and following. And it's the idea of ownership. In verse 9, God says, I'm not going to take, what, what, I'm not going to take your bulls, your goats. But then the, 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 the folly of it is in verse 10 and following, God repeats the word, mine, mine, mine. He's reminding Israel, listen, you think you're giving me something you own as if I need it? You're foolish. I own it all. Everything you're offering to me, I'm the supreme owner of it all. You've got these little flocks you're giving me a bull out of. I own the thousand mountains with millions of animals in them. And I not just own them all, I know them all. Job again. God reveals himself to Job this way, that God knows when the animals in the mountains give birth. It's not just a general knowledge, it's an intimate personal knowledge. This is the God whom they are to worship. So God claims ownership. And this really gets to the core issue that's going on here. The sacrifices that God commanded of Israel were not for God's sake. It was for their sake. It's not that God needed the sacrifices, that he was lacking and he set up the system so that he felt better. He was kind of, now I feel good because people are paying attention to me. No. God set that up. He established that system to teach them about himself and how they relate to him so that they, he, they could be delivered to have a way for them to relate to a holy God. And they got this all backwards. Sacrifices were designed to show them how sinful humans could relate to a holy God, not to fulfill a need in a holy God. Sadly, their sacrifices had turned into empty forms of heartless worship with scam-like attempts to control God. And that's why God says, I'm not going to accept your bulls or your goats anymore. You're doing this all the time, but you're not doing what I've asked you to do. So then what is the correction that God gives? How are they to relate to God? Verse 14. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. A sacrifice of thanksgiving. This is where this whole idea of worship turns in its understanding for our, for our thinking. I believe that what God is describing here is the heart attitude required for acts of worship to be genuine. Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, gratitude occurs in the heart of us, right? When I say heart, I'm not talking about the thing pumping blood through your body. The heart, scripturally, talks about that whole inner person, the inner soul reality of a person, your thinking, your emotions, your volition, where all of that takes place, that inner reality of who you are, that's where thanksgiving occurs. Really, two people can do the same act, one with gratitude, one without. Externally, those acts would, might appear to be the same. Right? I mean, somebody could be cleaning up the kitchen after a home-cooked meal. One of them could be doing it with thankfulness. The other one could not be doing it with thankfulness. Right? And the difference isn't the act. The difference is the heart in the one doing the act. That's what God is drilling at for his people here. Think of it this way. I know we need to teach children thankfulness, right? But you, you've maybe been there where you've got to you know, remind your, your, your little kid, Say thank you to Aunt Matilda for the Christmas socks she gave you. Oh, yeah, and they say thank you. And it's like, well, they're learning the, the, like the, the mechanic of thankfulness, but your heart as a parent is that they're going to understand that there's something more going on here than just the mechanic of thankfulness. It's the heart of gratitude, of somebody gave me something, somebody blessed me, 
Somebody offer to me what a gift, what a blessing. That's what God is after. God focuses on thankfulness because true thankfulness springs from a heart that admits its need. True thankfulness comes from someone who admits their utter dependence on God. That's what the sacrifices were meant to do. God had made a way for humans, sinful humans, to relate to Him. And it's going to require a cost, a sacrifice, in order to bring sinful humans into relationship with God for that relationship to be made. Psalm chapter 50, verse 15, it says, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. God wants his people to call out to him for help. He doesn't want their empty ritualistic actions of so-called worship with hearts that are full of any gratitude toward him. The heart of a true worshiper is when sacrifices are given to God not out of dry duty but out of heartfelt adoration and thankfulness for the deliverance that God has given them. That's true worship. So this should give us all pause. Right? It's easy to talk about Israel. Man, they got it wrong. You know, how boy, I'm so glad God wrote Psalm fifty for them. Get them straight, you know, figure them out. Friends, we have the same inclinations in us, don't we? We have the same tendencies on how we might try to relate to God. Do you do acts of worship to try to get God to bless you? That's moralism. Moralism has been defined like this. The idea that with our ethical life and religious observance, we can put God in our debt so that he owes us things. That's not true worship. Israel had fallen into a trap of kind of moralism. If I do this, then God's obligated to bless. If I do this, I'm giving God a favor. Now I can kind of control him through my prayers, through my requests. No. God is eager for heart genuine worship. So let's test ourselves. Are we motivated to do good to keep religious codes of conduct so that God is obligated to bless us? That's heartless. True worship is done out of grateful joy for the undeserved free gift of salvation in Christ. That's true worship. The sacrifices that God set up for Israel were to be an external expression of the heart allegiance that they had and thankfulness and dependence on God who is the one who delivers them. So the lesson in this psalm for us is timely. Like ancient Israel, we can become ritualistic in our acts of worship. Think about it. The songs we sing as a church family, are those just mechanically done? Because that's what churches do, and here we go again. Do you dutifully sit through songs, or do you let your heart engage with thankfulness that we get to sing things like, we have been forgiven. The guilt that we bear has been taken. The righteousness we need has been given. The life that we long for has been offered to us in Jesus. We get to sing things like this that are true for us because of God's salvation that is a free gift. How about your giving? Do you give financially because you're hoping that God's going to be obligated to bless you and your financial endeavors? Friends, that's just prosperity gospel. That's not heartfelt worship. God owns it all. I think that might be the idea. You're giving me your $20 bills and your $100 bills. God says, I own all the banks and all the mines that pull the riches out of the earth. They're all mine anyways. You're not giving to God anything he lacks. The biggest check that we could ever write doesn't impress God. 
He'll just grow more trees for more checks. When we think of it, we suddenly we realize the absurdity of what we're doing. Why do we attend a worship service on a Sunday? Is it do we gather out of a sense of moralistic obligation, out of a heart of, or out of a heart of grateful joy that we get to gather to sing praises with God's people? We are part of the redeemed people of God. We're like an outpost of God's people behind enemy lines right now, waiting for the return of our King, who has redeemed and saved us. Friends, this is a good Psalm 50 is a good pause for us to reflect and examine the motives of our heart. Well, Psalm 50 gets into the motives to correct us as true worshipers. There's a second area of correction. And we'll move through this quickly. Verses 16 to 21, where God condemns wicked living. You say, well, this seems pretty obvious, right? I mean, we can understand God condemning wickedness. But remember, this isn't God condemning wicked living, but he's talking to his covenant people. He's talking to the people that call themselves the people of God, Israel. And yet God is rebuking them with words of harsh judgment for their wicked living. He warns those who live wicked lives. Verse 16, But to the wicked God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? Right? He's talking to his covenant people. The reason that God asks them what right they have is because of their actions. Verse 17, They hate discipline. And you cast my words behind you. There's a sense of disdain in that language. Casting it behind them like, I don't even want to see it. Just get rid of it. Put it behind. Don't even talk that way. But yet they call themselves the people of God. An ancient Israelite lived with a sense of pride that they were God's chosen people. I mean, after all, they're the ones that God gave the law to, which is one of the greatest revelations of who God was in that time. He led them with, as a pillar of light, a pillar of cloud. He made these spectacular displays of his power on their behalf as a nation, delivering them from Egypt. He ushered them into the promise. He gave them food in the wilderness, water from a rock in the desert. On and on it went. The privilege that these people experienced as God's chosen people. What happened is that turn that got distorted into a sense of privilege so that millennia later, you have Jesus speaking to Israelites, rebuking them because they thought they were okay in their standing before God. We're fine. Because after all, Abraham is my great-great-daddy, my great-grandfather. We're good. We're part of the people of God. Who are you, Jesus, to talk to us with words of rebuke and condemnation? Who are you, is what they were asking. The Apostle Paul spoke about it this way when he says in Galatians 3, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. It's not just this physical lineage that gives you confidence before God. No, no. Yes, God blessed Israel ethnically as a, na- as a nation, yes, but that's pointing to something much greater. You're not okay just because you're born into that family. You're okay because you've been saved by grace through faith. So it appears that some thought they could live wickedly then. But hey, we're part of the people of God. How we live doesn't matter. God's people aren't people who hate discipline. They're not people who cast God's word behind them. Interestingly enough, here you have, right, God condemning wickedness. But we just got done talking about moralism, didn't we? Trying to do things to impress God, to give him favor from God, to get God to bless you. Saying, so I guess it doesn't matter how we live. No, it does matter how we live. Both of these truths are in the same psalm. In verses 18 through 20, God gives specific examples of their sin. And some of the sin is really more guilt through acceptance, through association. Notice there in verse, um, verse 18, if you see a thief, he doesn't claim that they are the ones doing the thievery. 
It's that they're seeing a thief and you're pleased with him. I'm wondering if this is kind of the idea of they're not the ones engaged in wrong business practices and un, unscrupulous business practices and thievery, but they're the ones that are they're okay if others do it so they can profit from it. So they're okay. They kind of wash their hands with the technicality of disobeying God, but they're going to be just fine profiting from those who are doing that. And they've got kind of this little insulation between them and, and the real wrongdoers. And God calls their bluff. Says you're doing the, you are you are wicked because you are associating with wickedness in those kinds of personal ways for gain. The same way with adultery, they have the same attitude toward marital unfaithfulness. Verse 19. Maybe they weren't engaged in the actual acts of law breaking, but they were in their hearts because their words were were like the words of lawbreakers. And I'm talking about God's law here. Okay. When it talks about how they were speaking with deceit, you're you're giving your mouth free reign for evil. So maybe they were acting okay. They were acting morally upright. Moralism. But their mouths were wells of deception. They were ruthless in their treatment of other people. You see in verse 20, you sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. No one was sheltered from the ruthlessness of their drive to accomplish and get their own gain. God calls them out for their wickedness. How could people living like this think they were okay? The answer is found in verse 21. These things you have done, and I have been silent. So they concluded, verse 21, you thought that God was one like yourself. We all can fall prey to this, but we start to think God is like us, which is why we get angry. Because if we were to be God, we would be doing things differently. We start to judge God as if he were our peer. As if our knowledge of the world and circumstances in our life and others' lives is comprehensive and therefore we can rebuke God for what he has done, his decisions, his choices. Friends, we are uniquely underqualified for the role of God. Terribly underqualified. But with something, something different happening here is that they thought that God's silence was, I guess it's okay. Because they weren't getting caught it's fine. I mean, if God had an issue, wouldn't he like intervene? Wouldn't he oppose? Wouldn't he speak against this? Wouldn't he prevent us from being blessed? I mean, look at, look at the blessing that we've received from all this wealth we've acquired, this, the business that's flourishing through these underhanded, wicked practices. Yet God says, you are wrong for you to think that I'm like yourself. God is nothing like them. And God is breaking his silence. Look back at verse 3. This idea of God breaking his silence is being highlighted in the beginning and the end of the psalm. Our God comes, verse 3, he does not keep silence. It's not that God just didn't know what to say. God has been silent in what they've thought is they've thought that they were getting away with it. What God was really doing, I think, in part, is, is showing them who they really are. He's silent. It's kind of like, you know, like in the classroom, all the kids are messing around. You know, the teacher's not there. The teacher shows up and they're all like, or the principal shows up in the room and they're all like, okay. But what if the principal of the school were able to look through like a one-way mirror, one-way glass, and see what the kids are doing? They think they're, no one's around, no one's watching, they're just acting out, being goofballs through the class, right? Not staying in their seats, being, throwing spitwaz, everything else. It's not that the principal was okay with it, or the teacher was okay with it, that their absence didn't mean it was approved. What happens is really our hearts reveal themselves when we think we're not being held accountable. 
The true, the true heart of what's in us comes out then. And I think that's what God has done here. His silence was not acceptance. His silence was letting them. They're living. They've proved themselves that they're wicked and now God comes in with judgment. And so the application then of this section is this. Does the wicked, the descriptions of the wicked describe you? What's your relationship with God? Is he just the silent principle in your life that you're kind of like, oh, I'm not in trouble yet. I guess I'm okay. Is that your relationship with God? Or is it of heartfelt worship and adoration? That God has reached into the cesspool of sin, sought you out with his love and mercy and saved you at great cost through the sacrifice of Jesus, the God-man. Do you think your wicked actions don't matter because you're not getting caught? Do you think it's not so bad because God hasn't struck you down or stopped you yet? Friends, it's not that God isn't a righteous, holy judge. He is. Psalm 50 reminds us of this. Elsewhere in the Scriptures, we're told that the silence, the apparent silence, the apparent absence of God is not that He is lazy, but that He is merciful and He is compassionate. And He is offering to you time to repent. He's offering you time to come to Him and embrace Him through thankful heart for the gift that he's given you in Jesus. Well, in the conclusion then, verse 22, verse 23, everything is wrapped up. And this conclusion is both harsh and hopeful. Mark this, which is kind of like pay attention. The most basic issue that we find here is that they have forgotten God. Verse 22. Mark this then, you who forget God. Well, how could they forget God? They're part of the people of God. They're surrounded by reminders that God is God. They're involved in sacrifices, doing all these things, yet they have forgotten God. Does your life, do your actions and attitudes reveal reveal a forgetfulness of God? Do you have a conscious awareness of God's existence? I mean, you think you read through the book of Ecclesiastes and you get to the final chapter and it says, remember this. Here's what you need to call to attention. Remember God in the days of your youth. Remember your Creator. Here's Psalm 50. The issue is they've forgotten God. So what is the answer to this? Well, stop forgetting Him. Hear and heed to this warning. God's judgment is coming. And His judgment is spoken about with harsh, kind of gruesome terms. You see it in verse 22? If you forget God, if you don't pay attention and mark that he is a righteous judge who will come and rebuke you for your wickedness and for your heartless worship, here's what he says, I will tear you apart and there will be none to deliver. Friends, this is the God that we serve. You're like, wow, here you are in a Christian church talking fire and brimstone against people who live differently. We're not making this up. This is the message that God has given He says that he will come and tear apart those that defy him and none will deliver. If you do not know God personally through Jesus Christ, this will be your eternal end. We must understand this. This is a truth claim of Christianity, okay? And and by the way, there's lots of claims in the world, right? Just to be a little apologetic. An apologist, somebody might say, well, how can you make that claim? I I think that's a bunch of foolhardy, backwater notions, you know, just meant to be the opium of the masses. That's not true. That what you just said is a truth claim. Equal to the truth claim of Christianity that God is righteous and will judge sinners for wickedness. 
The, the question is, friend, which truth claim are you going to depend upon? Christians believe the Bible is true and the revelation of God from the Scripture is revealed to us that God is a righteous, holy judge, which, by the way, we are in our hearts deeply thankful for because that means in that every injustice we've experienced, every wrong that hasn't been righted, not in our own lives, but in the world, through millennia of all world history, will one day be held accountable to this righteous, holy judge. And that's an encouragement. For Christians, it means we are not a people built on revenge. God is the one who gives revenge. My friend, God will tear apart all those who are not in Christ. So, here's the harshness of the warning. If you think you're wicked and getting away with it, you are not. Your day is coming. Your day is coming. So then, how then does this give us encouragement? Well, whenever there's talks, whenever the Scripture speaks about judgment, it also speaks to us about Jesus. And that's what we find in the next verse. Right? When he says, listen, I tear you apart, there be none to deliver. But verse 23, where's our hope then? Right? If there's no deliverance, where, what are we supposed to do? Verse 23, the one who offers thanksgiving as a sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. You're thinking, well, doesn't that sound like moralism? No, because the one who orders his way rightly comes after the heart of thankfulness. And that's the Christian reality. It sets Christianity uniquely apart from every other world religion. Every other world religion says, live this way to achieve this result. Christianity says, you can't do it. God's going to do it for you. Accept that by faith. He will transform your life so that you can begin living the way you ought. But you don't achieve forgiveness through your living. You live according to the gospel because you've been given forgiveness. That's verse 23. The one who offers thanksgiving. If Psalm 50 is about God's judgment, it's also about Jesus. One of the first ways it shows us Jesus is that Jesus never forgot God. And Jesus never did an act of false worship, ever. Every word he spoke, every action of healing, every miracle he did, he wasn't a showman. He was showing people God come in the flesh to save sinners like them. What kind of sinners? Sick and demon-possessed, losers of society, right? Praise God that we have a friend of sinners. But also Psalm 50 shows us Jesus because Jesus on the cross took the wrath of God and gave himself to be torn apart. He gave himself to be torn apart, as it were, so that he could offer deliverance to sinners like us. All who would embrace Jesus by faith, the substitute that God has given, Jesus perfectly ordered his way rightly, and this means that when we treasure Jesus by faith, we are given the gift of his righteousness so then what happens? The one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. It's God's salvation. It's not your earned salvation. It's God's salvation. So our response to this should be then thanks, thankfulness, thanksgiving. That we've been rescued from the judgment that we've read about in Psalm 50, the judgment that was summarized like this, I will tear you apart. So then our response should be willing and glad ordering of our life around these gospel truths. Isn't it wonderful that in a psalm that warns us of God's judgment, we're also given words of deep hope about God's salvation? So Christian, let's not get bored with the gospel. We need the gospel, not in the same way as a non-Christian, but we need the gospel nonetheless to warm our hearts and remind us of who we were, what God has made us, 
and then live in light and the thankfulness with gratitude to God every day. Our days are full of opportunities to what? To give offerings, to give acts of, of sacrifice, thanksgiving sacrifices to God. And if you're not a Christian, Psalm 50 is a warning for you to take heed of your ways and an invitation to know the salvation of God. 